Welcome to the Asia Society Hong Kong Movers and Shakers podcast. Through the short interactive fireside chat, we get to meet with the leaders and game changers in different industries for insights into their personal journey to success, what they learned, how they failed, and other interesting wisdom they may want to share. Today's podcast is with Merle Heinrich, chairman of the Heinrich Foundation and founder of Global Sources Limited. Dr. Heinrich co-founded Global Sources in 1970. He started the company with the firm conviction that free and mutually beneficial trade between East and West would help drive global economic prosperity and ultimately world peace. The Economist recognized Dr. Heinrich as Asia's e-commerce king, while Forbes Global has repeatedly voted Global Sources best of web. Through the philanthropic activities of the Heinrich Foundation, Dr. Heinrich aims to encourage the private sector and governments to drive innovation and competitiveness in trade-related activities. Dr. Heinrich invited us to the Heinrich Foundation to conduct the following interview. Thank you for taking the time to meet with us this morning. One of the uh, questions that we like to ask a lot of our sort of high-performing guests is if you had a morning routine, what's the first hour of your day look like? Exercise. My first, first hour of literally every day that I can manage is to have an hour to an hour and a half of exercise. <clears throat> and I believe strongly that it contributes to one's health um, and attitude uh, and certainly uh, uh, to length of life. And you've been doing this your entire career? I have been doing it for the last 20 years. I had polio when I was young, when I was five, and it left my shoulders uh, uh, somewhat paralyzed and it is essential to keep moving or to keep exercising one's good limbs as well as one's, let's say, poorer limbs, right, in order to sustain the strength that you have. So I believe that, it, you know, to keep your body not necessarily as a muscle builder, etc., but just to keep it in good condition. Is there anything about the polio that sort of uh, created a foundation of your mindset to uh, sort of achieve more or uh, be stronger? Well, I think that um, individuals, and I'll speak generally about this, that have infirmities of one sort or another, uh, learn early the value of independence um, and the importance of doing what you can and not having to rely upon others, per se. So typically, I think this is what a lot of individuals that have some kind of infirmity uh, try, they think about. Probably more than the individual that does not have a limitation. Now if we could sort of uh, stay for when you were young. When we were were younger, we usually have uh, influences in our life that we remember, mentors, parents. Mm. Uh, teachers. Was there an important lesson that someone taught you at a young age that you still remember to this day? Um, well, yes. my Yes, indeed, in fact, because my mother was a teacher. Okay. And so she was uh, a major influence on both myself and my two younger sisters. Because um, we never we never actually left the schoolroom. The schoolroom was our home. Oh. So she... Um, she was very positive and uh, left a very positive attitude with her children um, and, um, and an attitude towards life. And uh, 
actually um, encouraged us to uh, to explore uh, and to discover, and uh, that was I think was quite important for young people in particular, and I'm speaking of quite young people, yes. to take the opportunity, to live the opportunity, and to enjoy the uh, the education that is afforded by that. Now, a lot of young people, um, they don't have that um, that good mentorship or that, that, that you had when you were younger. Uh, and it sounds like you were able to take your entire life as always learning. Um, and you said curiosity, discovery, that was something that you sort of had at a younger age. Is there any sort of uh, uh, advice you would give to younger people to create or implement that muscle of curiosity and discovery? Well, um, I think a young person, let's say, is motivated by many, many different things. But if they start with a interest in the, the discovery process, and they are, then they are more capable and able to deal with change. And change can be either very, you can take it inclusively or exclusively. Uh, but the problem is one thing you can be totally assured of, that life is a process of change. So it, in, it can be looked at as a opportunity uh, or it can be looked at as a, a problem. Um, I think my preference has always been to look at it as an opportunity um, and to think in terms of uh, where it may vector and what it could what we could achieve by uh, exercising that. Now there of course there are changes with which by definition <coughs> are problematic for sure. Uh, but there are changes with which I find that a lot of people, either dismiss or pass by uh, simply for a lack of interest or a lack of uh, willingness to take the risk or to take the, uh, the initiative uh, to test it. When you say this uh, change, um, you say you have to be sort of a, I guess like a rational optimist. And I think this goes back to uh, your history. Uh, I think earlier on your first job in Tokyo, you had a uh, time when your boss, I believe, passed away, and you had the choice of starting your own thing or going and getting another job. Uh, to go back on what you just said uh, of change and taking that risk, um, what made you different and what made you uh, make that decision to take that risk um, than, say, your peers around that time? Oh, well, I can't speak for my peers, but I, at, at that moment, uh, I had already spent uh, several years in the marketplace. So one of the things with which inspired me is that I knew the market uh, quite well, uh, with which was an education unto itself. So I had traveled uh, across Asia, and I'd been engaged with all of the companies and the industries with which we were promoting at that time. And I knew that the market was there, should I be able, should I be successful in providing a service, a marketing service. Uh, but at that point, one, it's, there's 
certainly a risk because there was a lack of financial support uh, and there was, of course, a lack of time to achieve that end because you, you had to be able to exercise it quite quickly or you lose the momentum. If you could go back to sort of a, the education part, um, it says you were, uh, were you a Cornhusker? By definition, if you're born in Nebraska, you are a Cornhusker. <laughs> you, you cannot avoid not uh, being influenced in one way or another by, uh, the, by football, U.S. <laughs> football. But in terms of uh, sort of your, the education that you received there and the, the current education system in itself, there, there, there are arguments of inefficiencies. And um, would you, if you could change anything about the education system or you were talking to the youth right now, what advice would you give to them uh, in terms of what things they should learn, whether they're in school right now or out of school, and how can they learn those things? Well, there's two parts to that question. Either the, the provider mm-hmm. of the education or the recipient of the education, right? Right. So you can have a recipient that is excited and interested, being the student, uh, but can be substantially discouraged by the wrong educator or the mm-hmm. wrong teacher, right? So I think it is very important to get the catalyst between the two correct, and that means that both have to be participating uh, in a positive and in a creative and in a cooperative and a collaborative way. And what we have in today's world, as you, I'm sure you follow, is that we have education systems which are unable or un, they're incapable of really coping with the requirements and the demands. Okay, we also see that the Asian educational systems, if we're looking at this globally, uh, are doing a better job mm-hmm. uh, in producing and taking care of both students at the upper end and lower end, right. right? So if we, if you look at any one of these, it's, there's a variety of reasons. There's a cultural reason, uh, of course, with which the parents are not excusing themselves from participating in that, edu- or influencing the educational interests of the child. Uh, you have the state, and if I can give you a few examples of that, um, teachers in Japan, for example, have to requalify. I think it's either eight or uh-huh. every eight or ten years right. uh, to continue uh, as a instructor, exactly. uh, whether it be in the elementary or secondary or tertiary. So this and the teachers, of course, in relationship to other uh, other skill sets, are paid uh, paid better. Right, um, and I think that this this is very important that not only the teachers come to the party with the qualifications, but that they can renew those qualifications, mm-hmm. and there's a commitment right. to them, and that they're paid well, yes. and they're they're incentivized um, to carry out this critical critical role to our societies uh, and the need for education. Um, from from the student side, I think that if you know if the parents assist 
those children early in being curious and engaged and provide them the time to exercise those interests uh, in a in a in a game kind of environment mm-hmm. in a child in an atmosphere appropriate to a child to grow expand right. work with engage with uh, their their peer groups right so it's a combination of things as we as we appreciate it but it is in some parts of the world it is a broken system right uh, and it's very unfortunate uh, when you see for example the US in testing out in the STEM uh, the mathematics and sciences at let's say a 36 percentile or 36 level by comparison that is unacceptable totally unacceptable so uh, yes I'm uh, I'm very much uh, supportive of improvement in education uh, at all levels because it isn't just the problem of the provider or just the problem of parent situation but there's a societal issue right. associated with it and most certainly that there, there is a, a child a recipient's right. uh, attitude so you'd say it was a, a four-part uh, it's the community the parents enriching the child to be curious and then the teachers themselves yes and Japan is a good template um, as you said in, um, in terms of teach or uh, treating the teachers as important parts of society for the future that, that, that's really good um, I guess the next step uh, would be, uh, you know, after um, a, ch- uh, a young person has gone through the education system, um, it's important, especially for uh, a global organization like yourself, uh, in, order, in order for it to be successful, talent is a huge thing. Was there anything that you saw in particular in young people that you saw the potential of their talent, like that they would be... Uh, impressive executives within your organization. What did you see in a young individual that, that, that you knew that this person will be very successful? Um, I think it is not always readily apparent as to what and where and how an individual will succeed. Uh, you have students in particular that will mature much later in life and have to be given time. You will have students with which have language skills uh, as opposed to analytical skills. Uh, What I think is really critical for young people, and uh, this was probably, I think, something that I could have benefited from uh, at a younger age, was to have assistance of understanding oneself, uh, a self-awareness, mm. and I don't mean that in a, a, a either a cynical way. I, I think that understanding what motivates oneself, mm-hmm. um, what provides happiness uh, to an individual. An individual is typically not happy if they are not successful, right. so they need to be. Uh, more aware. I think young people that are made more aware of what brings balance to their lives and helps them accentuate the positive and 
let's say, minimize the negative aspects of life is really critical. Um, so, um, and providing providing young people with the excitement and the satisfaction of achievement, and that can be, you know, manifested in many ways. It can be manifested in a physical way. Um, sports often provides that, um, and sometimes, of course, at the sacrifice of, let's say, the academia, right? right? And, of course, there are schools and students with which excel from an academic point of view and the physical or the sports portion of it uh, is less important, right? I think that it's, it's critical to provide balance in this. I think that it's, we all know that the teen, the, let's say the post-teens or pre-teen area is a critical, critical area. Every stage of life is critical in one way. And we spoke about this earlier, about the issue of change. For one student to be aware that they go through a process of change. They go through a process of physical and mental change and that they have to, they should be looking at this in a positive way as, and, and looking forward to it. Uh, but be aware of their own capacity, ability, sensitivities, and their cultural, their cultural fits. Okay. This sounds uh, supremely important uh, uh, for these kids to, to learn these, uh, this sort of self-awareness that you're speaking about, uh, these kind of soft skills and confidence building and understanding well, their emotions. There are many schools that make reference to it uh, as a career plan. Right, okay. or assisting with career planning. Right. But before you get to career planning, right. you have to be comfortable with who you are, mm -hmm. what you are, mm -hmm. and what you aspire. What, what, what are you good at? What right. do you enjoy doing? Right. Yes, because you, it's difficult to get passionate about anything in with which you are a failure. Yes. Yeah. I mean, if, should I not be good at mathematics, mm -hmm. For me to simply pursue a, let's say, a degree or a doctorate in mathematics probably is not what I should be doing, mm -hmm. right? So if I'm, if I'm, let's say, an artist, uh, I'm not necessarily, if I'm made aware of that early in life and I can sense the, the joy and the happiness that it provides me, I probably will succeed as an artist. So self-awareness is self, uh, I use the word self-awareness, I don't mean that in simply a personality, I mean it in terms of how the skill sets that one has right. you know, and how it, how it can be accentuated and how it can be maximized and how it can be appreciated uh, and how it can lead to success. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's a very important uh, component of um what, what a young person needs and I guess you can't really put that into a curriculum like you say career planning I think it comes from everywhere right and they'll just have to uh, adapt themselves and be aware of it if we could go back to sort of your career we like to speak about failure a lot uh, with, with our guests um, can you think of a time in your career in your life where a great failure has has, has taught you lessons or has you've turned it into success um, 
well, several thoughts. And, uh, indeed, I've, there's, I don't think there's anyone in, that has not had a incidence of failure, for sure, both in the professional life and in a private life, mm -hmm. right? Um, I do think that it's important for young people to try to learn from other people's failures <laughs> versus their own. Yes. And the failures that they have personally that they don't repeat. Mm. Right. Because not to say that that hasn't happened to me, it certainly has. <laughs> but I think sometimes that the idea that failure is preferred or failure is not a an issue, it is an issue if you repeat the failures, right? Mm -hmm. So no one wishes to be a loser or a failure, right? And they should be thinking in terms of how they can avoid that failure or whatever it may be or losing the opportunity because there's, there's elements with which you cannot replace. One of them is time. Right. So if you've taken a longer period of time but have failed, you have not only failed from, let's say, a, a, a monetary point of view or you failed from a relational point of view or whatever it may be, but you have lost that time which you will never recover. Right. right? So I'm very aware, I'm very sensitive to when it, if I elect to do something, I will have established in my own mind a, a, a KPI, if you wish, mm -hmm. uh, that says, I will take this up to this point, and if I do not see the following, if I don't achieve the following, I will not pursue it. Mm. Okay? I do not pursue things with which I do not measure, right. or that I cannot measure. Well, that's not. 100% true, but in principle, that right. is the, that is the case. So yes, I've had failures. I attempted one time to provide a printing service, with, like an agent for print. Mm -hmm. And if you, in doing that, I learned a lot about printing and the issues of printing, and by having to tender to many different printers, um, I knew how to price printing, or how to price print, and paper. That served me very, very well when I went into the publishing business, because I was able to, uh, to certainly garner the, the best prices mm -hmm. for the print, print services. And at the time uh, when... Uh... When print was... Print. Yeah. <laughs> when print of, actually meant something yeah, to the business. It was the all-knowing all everything. I mean, in terms of uh, your entrepreneurial background, uh, that, that's a wonderful lesson, I, I think, that people can observe. In terms, you, you never went through the innovator's dilemma. You always pivoted depending on whether you saw the opportunities or you saw the innovation. Do you find that, uh, that that's a skill that you have that others don't, uh, that you're able to embrace technology and innovation right away? Um, I am not allergic to change or mm -hmm. innovation. In fact, um, I enjoy it. Yeah. I enjoy the, Seems like uh, it, yeah. the challenges of, uh, of 
new technology, new innovation, and change. Um, but I do, I'm early stage, I, you know, I always think of what the limits to that technology are, or the limits to the innovation are, or is it scalable and is it, uh, does it have expansion possibilities right. to it? So I don't pursue technology for technology's sake. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't pursue changing something just simply because I it intrigues me or I'm necessarily enjoying it. I I am quite commercial in that way. Yeah, it sounds like you have sort of a thought structure for how to approach these things, and it's very strategic. Now, in terms of um, understanding uh, the current global ecosystem. Do you have a fear? What's your biggest fear for the short term and for the long term at this moment? Well, you can address fears. I, I think you, first of all, you always address your personal fears, mm -hmm. right? With which um, is critical. And I, I think today it is to what extent at, at my age and at probably much younger age, is how you maintain your physical well-being. Mm -hmm. it, it isn't, it's an accentuated fear, it's not. But it is, it is a concerning, it is, and I think that it should be for everyone. Right. You have to take, you know, we have great medical care today. Mm. We have great doctors. We have technology and solutions, medical solutions, that were not even in existence two years ago or three years ago. Right. So it is important, I think it's really quite important that you take the responsibility. Mm -hmm. But it is always there and it's always of concern, whatever it may be. From, yes, from uh, uh, the career point of view and from, let's say, a larger geopolitical position, I hope that we survive the digital revolution. Um, I'm concerned, I'm very concerned about the various options available uh, at levels of AI and quantum computing and military applications that there is massive, massive uh, opportunity for misusage. Yes. And I think that the digital revolution has brought to bear a lot of the discontent and the populism yes. that we face today. Um, as if I look in my own publishing industry, as occurred in the 16th and 17th and 18th century, but the impact then was upon the advent of print and of the distribution of knowledge that had not had the same distribution right. before. Or speed. Or speed. Or speed. So the internet has provided massive opportunity to many and efficiencies with which we could not have even possibly contemplated 30 years ago or 20 years ago. Uh, but we recognize the the force of the change that has been brought about by yes. it, and how it is managed is clearly uh, challenging. Definitely. 
clearly challenging for many. Yes. So surviving the digital revolution. Yeah. I think it's only the beginning. We've only scratched the surface yes. of, of that particular yes. fear. But uh, we could talk about that for hours. <laughs> but uh, sort of to go back on track to sort of a more positive aspect. Um, when we look back on your career uh, up to this point, how much of your career and what has happened to you do you attribute to luck versus skill and hard work? Well, I think there's always something of a luck component of it. But I come from the belief that you make your luck. You make your opportunities. You, 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 you have to be aware. You, have, well, you don't have to be anything, but it is, it is recognizing the opportunity. It's people that are really lucky that I've seen that have been fortunate Yes, are individuals that are quick to recognize an opportunity. And if you look at all of the very, very wealthy people, I, I'm not talking about second or third generation, I'm talking about first generation, right? right? Uh, that these individuals have been able to identify, build, grow, and recognize the opportunities in their uh, in their businesses and in themselves. If you could go back in time, this is a time machine question, and speak to the 20-year-old Merle, what advice would you, even the 20-year-old uh, uh, young adult out there right now, what advice would you give to them? I've already said it. Um, I think the, the ability to be self-aware. Right. Um, if I would have had the insight of my skills more critically and in a more uh, in a more crisp manner and if I would have been able to, to really understand myself as a person mm -hmm. and understanding the baggage that one carries yes at 20 right. and why you carry the baggage mm -hmm. yes it makes for a it makes for a fuller life. It makes for a way of addressing things with which you carry, which affect and which tone how you live and how you see the world. Sort of a, for the last two questions here, um, I'd like to discuss more about um, your current role here with your philanthropy, the Heinrich Foundation. Right. Right. Um, you international trade, uh, encouraging education and training and uh, job creation. Um, what uh, would you like to, uh, your overall message and what you want to get done there? Um, you have an army of young people listening. What would you like to tell them to help support uh, sort of uh, the goals that you have with this foundation? Um, well, I welcome um, any young person that is truly interested in international trade mm -hmm. and interested in cultural change, cultural uh, uh, differences, interested in language and training of stud study of language. But I think that it is so essential in today's world, probably more than ever, that we have a higher appreciation of what international trade has represented in terms of relations, 
in terms of dependencies, in terms of standard of living, in terms of education, and in terms of opportunities. We would not have the well-being, we would not have the vast variety of technologies or product or consumer opportunities that we have today without international trade. So this is, of course, an area with which I have specialized in and I've focused on, and I am keenly aware that it is often distorted for political reasons, right. it's distorted for uh, self-serving and right. mercantilism reasons, uh, with which dis detracts from detracts from the benefits. Let's let me just give you one example. China has demonstrated uh, the value of participating in trade mm -hmm. and being more open to new technologies and new methods and new processes. It there could not be a better example of how that participation has lowered poverty standards. Right. I mean, there's been something like 600 million people or more in China that have been lifted from poverty because of economic growth and economic success. And China's economic growth and success sh could not have happened. It could not have succeeded without trade. Right. It just could not have. Yeah. So we, we can look at other successful countries, Japan being another. Mm -hmm. um, if Japan wouldn't have been, if the demand of the American uh, consumer or the American market would not have been present, Japan would have had much more difficulty with its maturity, its economic growth. Same thing is true of Korea. Same thing is true of all of Southeast Asia. There's been a benefit of trade, not only with the West, but internally. Hmm. So I am uh, uh, hopeful to uh, that at, from the educational point of view, if identifying young people that are self-selected, uh, that have this interest, because I'm more than happy to assist them. And we have scholarships to seven or eight different universities, and we're developing our own Masters of really? Global Trade with uh, the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology. And the first cohort uh, will be uh, launched February 2020 in Ho Chi Minh. Well, we'll have more uh, links to that in our show notes uh, for any of the listeners that would be interested okay, in uh, good. finding. Hopefully, we can uh, <laughs> funnel some of these future leaders, because you, you hit on an important point where uh, you know future diplomacy you know, on sort of a global level. Yeah, it really depends on the economic ties and the trade uh, between these countries, and it's a mutual benefit to everyone. And and hopefully, um, yeah, uh, your uh, your your future leaders will help. Uh, bring in that, uh, usher in the new era of uh, uh, world peace, I guess, through yeah. trade. Yeah. Um, just for a final question, though, we like to ask all our guests. Um, it's Asia Society's uh, 30th anniversary in January of 2020, 
And what we like to ask uh, our guests is uh, what their first uh, trip to Hong Kong or Asia was and what they remember. I, I, I read somewhere that you came to Japan with $25 in your pocket and you, you yeah, that, that's, that's, is, that, is that a true story? That's true. <laughs> that's true. And a one-way ticket. I wow. didn't have a ticket to return. But I, um, um, I had been in publishing before. I'd uh -huh. Also, I've been in newspapers and radio and television, um, both in undergraduate and in graduate work. And so, when I saw this posting uh, for from this publishing company in Japan, it really fascinated me, and I was quite keen on. Um, seeing what it was all about. And so that's why I accepted the invitation to come to Japan and uh, interview for the job. Wow. Um, and with the view that, you know, some way or somehow uh, we'd see how, what the next step was. That's, that's amazing. $25 in one-way ticket. <laughs> very uh, skilled to have got that job over everyone else. Um, yeah, we don't want to take up too much of your time. This has been a uh, wonderful. Uh, uh, thank you so much for your uh, for your You're wonderful very welcome, wisdom. Joe. It's yeah. been quite interesting. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, this is. Been